0: Looking for economic drivers in the Upper Cumberland. Supporting the president's agenda. Hoping for the chance to continue helping local people. From News Talk 94.1 and Lake Rock 95.9. Your chance to hear where the candidates stand. Their background, their interests. Election 2020. Meet the candidates final days of campaigning before Tuesday's election, both on the national side and the local races that matter most to the residents of the Upper Cumberland. Tonight, we'll take a look at the District 16 Tennessee Senate race, also the District 43 Tennessee House race, and we'll sit down with Congressman John Rose. Meet the Candidates continues from News Talk 94.1 and Light Rock 95.9. Congressman John Rose wants to serve the Upper Cumberland as a member of the U.S. House. He's running against Christopher Finley. You know, I was thinking as we were preparing that it—it it almost is hard to believe that it's been two years since we first sat down and did this discussion. Has it gone that fast for you?
1: It—it it really has. Uh, the last uh, two years have just been a whirlwind, so it's really hard to believe. But it's been. Uh, Very interesting and very fulfilling, and hopefully uh, uh, I feel like we've done a good job for the people of the 6th District of Tennessee.
0: What would you say are some of the biggest learnings that you have had over those two years?
1: Well, uh, regretfully, one of the things probably that's been a real eye-opening experience for me is the degree to which the majority controls uh, what happens in the House of Representatives. Uh, I probably had never really uh, had a reason to ponder that, but uh, Nancy Pelosi, as uh, as Speaker of the House and leader of the majority uh, uh, Democrats in the House, uh, she controls the agenda. She controls what we discuss, what we vote on. Uh, whether or not we can amend the bills that come to the floor, and 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 really every other every other aspect of how the House operates, and so uh, that has been a that has been a, quite a stark learning experience for me. Is
0: the experience is it is it hard um, to deal with because of that kind of sense of gridlock?
1: Well, it is. And I, you know, it is frustrating, uh, uh, serving in the house because of the pace of things. And, uh, part of that is because of the current, uh, uh, you know, gridlock that we see, but part of that is because the founding fathers wanted the process to be difficult. Uh, and so I take solace in that. You know, there's a reason why we have the old adage, uh, it will take an act of Congress. Uh, We say that when something is really difficult to to accomplish, and there's a reason uh, why that adage arose. And and the Founding Fathers wanted the Congress, uh, they wanted our federal legislative branch of government to move in a very uh, deliberate way, and they achieved what they sought to achieve in that.
0: How much of your job as uh, serving this region is about... Uh, working on issues and problems that people have.
1: It, it is a it is a very big part of the job. Uh, as many people know, my uh, our chief of staff is uh, former Congressman Van Hillary, and Congressman Hillary told me early on. He said, "John, I know that you probably won't believe this until you've been in office for a while, but the the most gratifying part of this job will be." Uh, the things that you do that seem like small things at the time, but solving, uh, the, you know, but are solving real problems that constituents that residents of the sixth district have that they bring to us and we're able to intervene on their behalf, uh, before the various agencies of the federal government and help them solve their problems. And that is very true. And so, um, lots of times people wonder why members of Congress have, uh, staffs and, uh, and, you know the number of people helping and that's because there are a lot of issues that arise uh you know each day that that we're able to help intervene for folks and solve their problems and it can be something as simple as obtaining a passport in a timely fashion to uh you know more you know more critical issues like helping a veteran receive the benefits that they need and that they've earned from their service to this country and and so we we have seen that indeed i've learned that lesson already and and uh, uh we're happy to work hard every day to try to solve problems not every problem are we able to solve the the bureaucracy is uh, difficult to navigate as many people have have learned the hard way but uh very often we are able to intervene and help help people get to the solution that they need
0: John Rose is our guest on Meet the Candidates. If you were to point to some things that uh, you're proud of uh, that you've accomplished during these two years, what what would they be?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And I think, you know, I ran uh, on the, uh, I guess, platform of taking Tennessee values to Washington, helping to get Washington out of Tennessee. And And one of the ways in which I believe that I've been working to accomplish that is by helping to support the president. Uh, it's, it's difficult to point to legislative wins when you're in the minority because, as I mentioned early on, as we started the interview, the, the majority controls the agenda. So it's hard to get legislation before the House. But we, you know, we did succeed in getting, uh, uh, one of our bills, uh, into the, NDAA last year, and uh, it became law, which, uh, you know, improves uh, the protections uh, that are in place to help stop uh, uh, terrorist organizations from using the uh, international banking system. And so are very proud to, to have that achievement done on a bipartisan basis. And one of the things that people don't realize, because I guess the news media took. Uh, typically focuses on the points of disagreement, but there are many points of agreement, so there are many times when we're able to bring bipartisan groups together and and uh, accomplish things so that's that's uh you know certainly something that I would point to that that I think we've accomplished we've We've also accomplished a lot of the things that we're able to do by by simply prodding the administration or prodding the Congress, the leaders of Congress through uh, uh, joint letters from members of Congress. And so we have signed on to a lot of those uh, letters, uh, led some of those letters in many cases. And, uh, you know, so so what I would describe as small but significant wins that we're able to achieve from time to time uh, with respect to those uh, initiatives. During this uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, we've worked with uh, colleagues on both sides of the aisle, with respect to the relief that we've been able to provide to small businesses to persuade the Treasury and the SBA to um, change their procedures and their approach to how those loans uh, that they've made, in some cases to our small businesses or other relief measures, have been implemented. And we've achieved some successes, some important successes there as well.
0: As we talk about some of the issues that our nation and our region face, let's stay with COVID for a moment. And uh, the federal government has spent an enormous amount of money. It's one of the things that happens when you're in an emergency. But now, Congressman, how do we find the resolve both in Congress and among the American people to pay off this debt that is growing at a, at a really alarming rate?
1: Well, it is troubling, and and you know the there is an old adage that when you find yourself in a hole. Uh, the first thing you've got to do is quit digging. And so that's very, very true for this, you know, for where we find ourselves as a country. A lot of people like to talk about, uh, reducing the debt, but we can't reduce the debt until we quit, uh, increasing the debt. So, uh, that's really the first step. And I'm, I'm hopeful about that. Frankly, I think it can be done, but it, it's going to require a concerted effort and a group effort from the, you know, from the population at large. We've all uh, come to expect too much from the federal government, and so if we're going to, um, if we're going to get this under control, we've all got to come to understand that the the federal government can't do everything for everyone, and we've all got to learn to accept less, Uh, and it's a very important first step. You know, when I speak to groups across the district, and I spoke to Two, uh, two or three yesterday, and I and I get this question often, and that's that's the way I always began uh, talking about it, uh, and and then we've got to change our mindset, the mindset of the bureaucracy in Washington, and frankly, uh, you know that includes also getting uh, constituents and groups to understand and members of Congress to understand that we can't just uh, put. Programs on autopilot, uh, and expect that to work out well. So we have way too much of the federal budget that the Congress doesn't visit on an annual basis to consider. Uh, you know, now it's approaching two thirds of the budget that essentially is considered. Um, uh, you know, we don't we don't actually address on an annual basis the you know so called entitlement programs, and frankly, we have to start looking at them on a regular basis and. We have to start treating the money like our state legislature te- uh, te- you know treats the money of Tennessee taxpayers. there's a reason why Tennessee has the lowest debt uh, in the country. there's a reason why we have the lowest taxes in the country and it's because our legislature uh, you know spends our money like it was their money, and we've got to adopt that mindset in Washington.
0: I was thinking as you were talking that you know everybody is about uh, lowering the debt and decreasing government spending until something that they are interested in is about to get looked at, and then you see television commercials and hear radio commercials and newspaper ads. Don't let Congress stop this. And that's on all of us.
1: It really is. We we all have our, uh, you know, sacred cows, so to speak, it, that we want to protect. When it comes to the federal budget and we've all got to expect less from the federal government. And frankly, if we don't make that decision proactively in the next few years, it will be forced upon us at some point in a, in a way that is not, uh, you know, not pretty for the country and not, uh, not good for, uh, you know, our children and their children's children. So we, we need to get control over this. We, we did it in the, in the 1990s, the late 1990s, uh, and, and frankly, it was not as difficult as some might have imagined. We've just got to, we've just got to, uh, put in place some, uh, you know, some understanding that we're going to control the rate of increase of the federal budget. And that's all that they did in the 1990s. And then, and then that coupled with a surging economy brought us into surpluses and fairly, in a fairly short period of time. It's going to be a little more difficult this time because we've dug the hole deeper in the meantime. But uh you know, if we would get control over spending and and limit uh the increases that we uh that we take on each year and then you know combine that with a thriving economy. And I'm hopeful, you know, the President Trump uh, brought us the, the the best economy in my lifetime, arguably the best economy in the history of the country, and he did that while also uh, negotiating better trade deals around the, the world and securing our border and uh, honoring our uh, commitments and obligations to our treaty partners around the world and, and also bringing home troops. And, and, you know, so we can do that again. We The coronavirus has knocked us off our stride a little, but uh, we see the recovery going well, particularly here in Tennessee, where we're all the way back down to 6.3% unemployment. We, you know, we started out at 3.3. We went to 15.5 and we're back down to 6.3. So truly the, the V-shaped type recovery that the president has, uh, you know, has indicated he wants to achieve. And I think we're well on our, our way to doing that here in Tennessee. And, and the country is doing well too. We've just got to get our businesses back open and our schools back open while also taking the necessary precautions to keep people safe.
0: Let's talk infrastructure, and one only has to drive to Nashville to understand the challenges that growth has as it relates to infrastructure. Do you feel like the the federal government is doing what it needs to do in terms of roads and bridges and highways uh, to, to make sure that the, those things are taken care of?
1: I don't believe we are at all. You know, as I travel, as you describe, on the interstate highway system, and of course we have some projects going on between here and Nashville now, but, you know, most of our interstate highway system, not all, but most of it uh, is almost as old as I am. I'm 55. And, you know, as a youngster growing up, of course, the interstate highway system was being completed, uh, uh, not not all complete but was largely complete at that time and much of it has not been enlarged or expanded uh you know in those 55 years and and if you think back to that time friend the, the mid late 1960s if we had gone back 55 years from 1965 so you do the math there and think about what year that would have been. <laughs> and, uh, if we had gone back and if the road system in this country had not changed in that prior 55 year period, imagine what it would have looked like. And, and yet we have not made the level of investment we should in our infrastructure over that period of time. And we, so we need to make a major investment in infrastructure. Now we're going to have to pay for that and folks just need to understand that. Uh, one of the other mistakes that the federal government has been making is that they haven't been providing adequate funding or an adequate source of revenue to fund infrastructure, and that's part of the reason we haven't been getting the job done. So, um, you know, while uh, none of us like taxes, obviously we need to pay for that, and Tennessee, I think, has shown, again, leadership to the nation by – uh, at the appropriate time, stepping up to the plate and adjusting the, the fuel taxes that we have to pay for badly needed infrastructure. And the federal government needs to do, we need to do the same thing. We need to make sure that there are the resources available, and then we need to prudently apply those resources to the to the areas that most need them. And And so again, thinking about our interstate highway system, I think we've all found ourselves stuck in traffic at some point on the on the interstate highways and certainly here in the upper Cumberland, uh, you know, we need good roads to reach to, you know, every county of the sixth district. Uh, there are 19 counties in the sixth district and a number of them do not have adequate uh, major transportation routes in and out of those counties. And so that's a priority of mine to see that happen and uh, have made that clear in Washington and will work hard to try to achieve that.
0: John Rose, another form of infrastructure that, again, has hit us hard as it relates to COVID is broadband access. And sometimes I think we all get complacent in thinking, well, everybody has Internet. And we have seen it through the school systems in the Upper Cumberland that that is not the case, that not everybody has that access. What role does the federal government play as a partner with state governments, local governments, and then also the private sector to try to encourage that?
1: well you're exactly right, and it is uh, another very important uh, form of infrastructure for our country and and that has been brought uh, clearly into focus by coronavirus and the the number of uh, uh, students who are you know asked to go home and try to learn from home and if they don't have an adequate broadband connection then that makes that very difficult but but also our business and industry and uh, workers who've been asked to work from home they need that as well and so what we 've seen is that if if uh rural tennessee and tennessee at large and the country uh as a whole is going to be successful economically going forward we've got to make sure that we have in place uh a plan and programs to make sure that we have broadband uh you know cutting edge broadband infrastructure in place across the country and we need to that's not just a one and done exercise we need to make sure that we have in place the the uh you know the the programs to make sure that we stay at the cutting edge and that's good for the country, it's good for Tennessee, it's good for the 6th District. We don't have that presently. We have kind of a patchwork of programs in place. Tennessee, again, has in some ways led the nation in, in uh, addressing this issue. So in some regards, we're better off than other parts of the country but we do have, unfortunately, pockets uh, all across the state that still don't have the broadband access that they need. And my my solution to that, I think, is to tear a page out of our history books. Uh, you know, back in the 1930s and 1940s, we organized programs um, to electrify the country, to bring electricity all across the country, and also to bring telephone all across the country. And it's my belief that if we look at those programs and follow the blueprints that we laid out back then, we could solve this problem. And we could only, not only solve it in the, in fairly short order, but we could put in place a system that would make sure that it was solved uh, going forward. And so the, the Federal Communications Commission has uh, what they call the Universal Service Fund uh, that was historically created primarily to help Bring telephone services across the country. Unfortunately, we've we added some uh, we added some programs to their mandate uh, to what they do that have distracted them from their I guess core mission, and they've been a little bit slow as well. I think to adapt and evolve, and so uh, you know I have been advocating in Washington and. Uh, you know, working with colleagues to try to get legislation in place and to encourage the administration and the FCC to put in place programs that will, um, you know, that will follow that pattern from the past so that we make sure that we have, uh, you know, a broad-based program in place to bring broadband to everyone. The good news, uh, Mr. Stone, is that here in the 6th District, particularly in our rural areas that are served by our rural telephone cooperatives, uh, are ahead of the game. They've been doing a good job. Uh many of them have uh already built out broadband infrastructure, fiber to the home all across their service areas and the ones that haven't are are, are in the, you know, making quick work of that. So in the next year or two, we will see a good part of the Sixth District of Tennessee uh with uh, broadband access. Unfortunately, some of the areas like Cookville and and Crossville that are served by the incumbent telephone companies are some of the areas that, uh, unfortunately, will be some of the last to get that service, and that's very unfortunate, and it points to the gaps that we see in the patchwork of programs that I described. John
0: Rose, what role does Congress play in law enforcement reform as, uh, has been seen across our nation this year?
1: Well, I think we do have a role to play, although, you know, one of the great strengths of this country has been our system of federalism, where we allow states, uh, uh, you know, to pursue their own course on many issues. And one of those is in the area of criminal justice. So, uh, aside from the thing, the crimes that we federalize, um, uh, you know the criminal justice and civil justice system are state systems. Uh, the federal government does have a role to play. You know this country is, uh, and I, it is my belief, is the is the best country in the history of the world in terms of uh, most any measure you might think of, and certainly in the with the measure of freedom, I would say. And and uh, justice, we have done a very good job. But we're not perfect. It's a work in progress. The country is 231 years. The republic is 231 years old. And so we continue to search for ways to make improvements. And so I think Congress can, uh, you know, offer assistance by taking a hard look at some of the, uh, uh, you know, practices that are in place and helping to uh, encourage local and state uh, authorities to you know, to turn, uh, you know, inwardly and, and assess whether or not the practices and procedures they have in place are accomplishing the, the, you know, the goal of providing equal and fair justice to all. I do not believe that we have a, a systemic, uh, a problem of systemic racism in the country. Certainly there are, uh, problems, pockets, uh, individuals that, uh, you know, that are out there and that's going to always be true, uh, And so we need to have programs in place to help identify those things and we need to call them out when we see them. But, uh, we also need to know that our system of justice works. Sometimes it works slowly, but oftentimes, uh, you know, the, uh, when we jump to conclusions too quickly, we make the, we make the wrong choices. And so we need to give our system of justice time to work, time to, to ferret out the facts and, and, uh, and apply our laws equally and fairly. And when we, we see, uh, when we get in a hurry and we see sometimes we get anxious and, and individuals, uh, get a little overwrought about wanting to see instantaneous justice, then that's when we see some of the problems emerge. And, uh, that's not the way our system was built to work. It was built on the presumption of innocence for, ev- innocence for everyone. And there's a system that, that works its way and, uh, deals with these issues and oftentimes not as quickly as we would like, but in the end, I think in a fair and balanced manner. And we need to make sure that at the federal level that we're encouraging the states and local governments to uh, to let those systems work and not short circuit them. And and then when we see problems emerge, there, you know, where the federal government can weigh in. You know, we 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 need to either provide assistance or provide encouragement.
0: Finally, Representative John Rose. Why should an Upper Cumberland resident cast their ballot for you Tuesday?
1: Well, thank you, uh, Larry, for that question. Um, you know, I am a lifelong uh, Tennessean, <clears throat> excuse me, an eighth-generation Tennessean. Uh, I've spent my career prior to going to Congress uh, a little less than two years ago in the private sector. I believe that the Founding Fathers wanted a citizen legislature. They wanted folks to go and serve for a season and come home. And I've made that commitment uh, as I ran. Uh, I ran on the, on the platform of taking Tennessee values to Washington and getting Washington out of Tennessee. And so I think that, uh, you know, I would ask the folk ask for everyone for their vote on November 3rd or in early voting the remainder of this week. And I will commit to you that I will uh, go to Washington and, and do my very best to express the views of the people of the sixth district support our president, and continue to work to protect life, protect the Second Amendment, uh, work to ensure that our border is protected and that our laws are enforced, and uh, continue to work with the president to revive the greatest economy in the history of the world and and bring jobs uh, and opportunities back to Tennesseans.
0: Let's turn to the race for the District Forty Three Tennessee House. Paul Sherrill is the incumbent. He's running against Luke Cameron. Paul Sherrill, thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to come and talk with you.
0: So why do you want to return to Nashville?
2: Well, I I have to give the good Lord the credit. He's the one that's made it happen for me uh, since I was elected the first time in uh, 2016 and I feel like this is what God wants me to be doing in my time of life, so we, we just want to praise God and thank God, and and we want to go back and hopefully uh, try to do more for our uh, district, uh, the, which is the 43rd district, uh, White County, about two-thirds of Warren and all of Grundy County, and hopefully for the great state of Tennessee, the people in the great state of Tennessee, so hope we can go back and work more for the, for everybody.
0: Are there things that you have worked on during your time already that uh, you would say you point to that and say you know I'm proud of uh, of that accomplishment?
2: Yes, sir. I I would have to say uh, I go back to my first bill that I carried uh, in uh, Nashville was uh, uh, for our volunteer uh, fire department men and ladies and and our volunteer rescue squad folks that people goes out and works for us that don't get no pay for it they get a license plate uh, uh, at no cost unless they have to pay the wheel tax in whatever county it might be. But that's something that we want to try to do is help our people that's out working for us and and uh, don't get no money for what they do for us. But we want to say we appreciate all them people like that.
0: As you have talked to people, and I know it's been harder this year because of, of COVID-19, mm. but what are the things that people are saying to you that they want Nashville to address?
2: Well, probably the biggest thing is, uh, you know, uh, I guess in the field of law enforcement, um, as we've had these people down in Nashville that is um, protesting. But, uh, yes, there is people that do pre- protest in a in a, say, a nice way. But we've had a bunch of thugs uh, especially in nashville that's been down there and and uh they was not protesting; they was tearing up things you know tearing our monuments down and they was tearing things up on our properties state property or city properties and and uh burning trying to burn some buildings you know we we don't need to tolerate stuff like that so we've got to probably in the field of law enforcement we have to maybe try to uh come up with some uh New laws or, uh, reinforce the laws that we have to try to protect our heritage that our forefathers has fought for us, that we can have the freedom we have. We, we just can't tolerate stuff like that. So, that's one of the, probably the, the hottest topics I think that will be. And of course, uh, uh everybody wants health insurance. So that'll be probably a big top priority that we try to do more for, uh, people to help them with their health insurance and and you know you could go on down education of course uh, with this virus mess um, education is probably uh, something that we'll have to uh, make sure that we uh, try to take care of our teachers and our students uh, because of schooling has been so different this year and trying to educate our children and we got to make sure we try to take care of uh, teachers and our students and staff. So.
0: Let, let's talk about the, the health care issue, because there are a lot of people in Tennessee that feel like that we're leaving federal dollars on the table because of the way uh, our 10-care is set up. Uh, how do you come down on that issue?
2: Well, to my understanding of this is uh, the, the federal will tell you that we'll do this, but you gotta match it up to a period of time. Uh, they will do that for just a short period of time and then they'll turn it over to you, uh, to the state, and then you gotta foot all the bill. So you can get caught up in something there, you know, if if you tell me, uh, uh Larry, you tell me I'm gonna give you uh a dollar and it's gonna cost you two dollars, so you give you do a dollar and I do a dollar and you're gonna do that for a year and then the end of the year, you've got to pick up both dollars. So you've got to figure, you know, sometimes the sweet deals ain't as sweet as uh, they like to say it is.
0: You have also spent time uh, working in committees on mental health and, and also substance abuse. As you, uh, As you look at kind of the reaction to COVID-19, for example, has that uh, exposed the need for even more resources to be put into mental health?
2: I'm sure it is uh I haven't talked to no one just lately but uh uh with this virus it is uh it's affected everything I, like a man said I don't know of anything it hasn't touched it's uh, uh people is probably you know they're maybe home uh more and they may be they could be stressed out more because they're not getting to work and uh, maybe they've been trying to get their unemployment, and they ain't getting their unemployment like they should, and you know stuff like that. Just it, it just snowballs, and people become um, just mentally strained, and then next thing you know, they're sick, and they're needing some kind of help from somewhere. So yes, it's it's affected everything, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll have to try to address this as as time goes along.
0: Paul Sherrill is our guest. Let's turn to education. Are we in a place right now where the state's role in education, in your mind, is, is kind of the right amount, or is the state too involved?
2: You know, in the state of Tennessee, uh, compared to what I'm hearing of other states, uh, education is good in the state of Tennessee. Do we have room for improvement? Yes. Uh, according to what I'm hearing, uh, there's always something that we need to do to make our education uh, system better. Uh, I don't serve on education, so uh, I don't hear that much in Nashville as much as I do some of the other committees that I serve on. But uh, uh, education is very critical for our students, uh, for our society. Uh, We need people to have good education so they can get good jobs. So uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of work to be done in education uh, this coming season.
0: What role, Paul, does the state government play in economic development? Obviously, White County just had a a huge opening last week that uh, is going to affect the county for a long period of time. Does the state play a significant role, or is that more a local issue?
2: The state, of uh, course, in our legislative uh, time, we're down there. We uh, we work to put money into uh, different departments of the state to try to reach out to wherever it may be across the globe to try to get uh, good businesses to come to uh, Tennessee, like just like Herman, come from. More or less, they come, from the, the home office is in Germany. The owners is in Germany. So, you know, you reach out to, we have people that goes across the globe trying to reach out. So as we put money into it, we send people out. Uh, the governor's staff, he sends people out to reach out to people. So I'm gonna say it's both. You gotta have both. You gotta have, you gotta have, uh, the state working hard to try to bring people in to, to our local governments, but our local government has gotta prepare theirself, uh, to try to have these bins. You gotta have, uh, land, you gotta have water, you gotta have sewer, you gotta have electricity, you gotta have, phone. I mean, you gotta have all these things for, uh, them to want to come to, and then you gotta have the workforce, and, and, um, you know, they'll look at you that way if you have what they're wanting, so.
0: And it's interesting that, you know, broadband is now one of those resources that's critical. Uh, yeah. White White County is one of the areas where I think it surprised some people of just how many pockets in White County still don't have access to broadband.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was talking to a lady that's uh, people that's over uh, like Ben Lomond telephone in White County. And of course, I have White County Warren and Grundy and And there is still some areas, like you said, that that does not have uh, the access like they should, but they are working more on it. And we are getting more money uh, from the federal government to hopefully help in uh, these areas and and, uh, continue to make it better for us in the state of Tennessee for the people.
0: Paul, what do you see your role as as a member of the House? Are you... uh... Uh, I can imagine that you spend a lot of your time and your staff spends a lot of time every week just trying to help people with issues that they're dealing with with state government. Okay.
2: Well, like I said, I was elected in 2016. And uh, in 2018, of course, I was elected to be floor leader on the floor when we're in session. And um, so uh, I'm, I try to help keep the bills flowing, people ready to present their bill. But uh, we do a lot of, especially this year, a lot of trying to help people with their unemployment. Uh, a lot of people is called my home, uh, which is fine. You know, we've tried to help people that's been uh, laid off, and this year has been uh, a major amount of people that's laid off. So they call here. somewhere way or another, they they call here. We try to give our number out to people and as they call home and then we forward them on to Nashville to my office, uh, in Nashville that I'm allowed to hold and my assistant secretary, she gets her name and information and then she sends it over to the Department of Labor and the Department of Labor will, uh, send this, uh, information back to the people and tell them what they need to do to, you know, about their unemployment. So it, it's been a, it's a big, big thing and then other things you know just whatever you know we can help them a lot of people uh calls that they may have a federal issue you know and we try to direct them to whoever like john rose is a united states representative in white county and other counties and then in in warren county and and uh, grundy county of course, we try to forward them on, or you know, help them through Dr. Scott Dejourlay, which is the United States representative in them two counties that it represent, So we just try to help in whatever way we need to help people to get the help they need for whatever need it might be.
0: I asked the question because I think people think you know you spend all your time on the floor and, and putting bills through, but you really are in the service business, are you not?
2: Yeah, yeah, we, and that's and that's part of the position, you know, I you know, people, when I first run, you know, is, uh, on my little cards I'd give out to people, i give out my home number. That's the only number I had to give out, really, uh, to people to try to let them know that uh, if I am elected, you know, here's my home number. You can call me. You know, it's fine. My number's in the book. You can call me. It ain't no problem. And uh, once I got elected, of course, I put on my cards, I put my my home number is still on there and then my Nashville number is still on there to try to, you know, one way or another, you know, they can get a hold of us and, and, uh, tr- we're trying to be available to the people to let them know that we want to help the people the best we can. And, and, uh, a lot of people has told me that, uh, uh, since I've been elected that, uh, I've tried to call them back and no, I have not reached out to everybody. It just, you know, there's just people you'll miss, but, when they call, I try to call them back and uh, let them know that if, you know, if, well, what can we do to help you? And they can't believe that a lot of people is, well, I can't believe you called me back because they didn't have that before. You know, they didn't have somebody to call them back. So we're trying to do that to help the people to accommodate them the best we can.
0: Finally, Paul Sherrill, if uh, <laughs> someone is headed to the polls Tuesday and there's your name, why should they cast your bow- they cast their ballot for you?
2: Well, I feel like that um uh, well I have competition uh this time and nobody can don't even know who the competition is, which that's great, uh not na- not making his name available or not making his uh number available or nothing like that. So, you know, there's nothing there for people. But uh of course I run on the Republican ticket. I'm uh uh feel very strongly, I'm a full fledged Born, uh, Republican, and, and, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the Republican Party stands a whole lot better for what the Democrat Party does stand for today. And, and we want to make sure that people know that, uh, we are a person that stands for our Second Amendment, our freedom that our forefathers just fought for, our Constitution. Uh, and we're just out to try to help people, and, and, you know, and people, people will say, well, how do you feel about the Bible? Well, the Bible is God's Word, and, you know, it's just like uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, according to the Bible, that period, you know, and then, well, they think about abortion. Well, abortion is is wrong, uh, and wherever they want to say about it, but life starts at conception. Life don't start when the baby's born. It starts when it in conception. I mean, you know, things like this, and hey, we got farmers out there that needs help. We want to help them. We want to help our people in the medical field and in different departments that we want to help our schools and, and, you know, just all the fields. But, you know, here's what I want to say to people, and I try to say this every time at my ending of whatever it may be, that my home number is 931-935-8488. And my office in Nashville is six one five seven four one nineteen sixty three. 741 Ms. Sherry is my assistant secretary. And I always try to ask for people's prayers, support, and vote.
0: Paul Sherrill, candidate on Tuesday as we head to the polls. Always good to catch up with you, Paul. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Larry. Luke Cameron is the challenger in the District 43 race. He was not available to be a part of Meet the Candidates. Van Buren and Warren counties across the Upper Cumberland are part of District 16, the Tennessee Senate race. Sheila Younglove is challenging Janice Bowling in the 16th District. What has this experience been like for you over the last several months?
3: This has been a real eye-opener. I had no idea what all went into uh, running for office, particularly at the state level. So it has been a real education of how hard candidates work.
0: What has and the been people around them? <laughs> yeah. What has been the most surprising part of
3: it to you? I think the most surprising part is, and I guess it shouldn't be surprising, is um, how many good people come out of the woodwork. And, you know, are glad to talk to you. I I didn't think, you know, that people would be so receptive, but they've been, you know, delightfully receptive.
0: When you were a student at Warren County High School, was running for office something that you thought about?
3: I sure didn't. (laughs) It was never in my playbook. You know, I just, no.
0: Tell us about uh, your upbringing and uh, your career and what's brought you to this point.
3: Okay. Well, um, I was born in Flint, Michigan, the youngest of eight children. My parents were originally from Tennessee, and they went up north you know, after World War II, and all the car factories were really cranking up. And uh was born up there, and sadly, they both died by the time I was eight. And I moved back down south. Uh, they split all the youngest children up. You know, Nobody could take all of us on. There were four of us that were underage. So we were split up between our mother's sisters and uh, raised in their families. And I landed in McMinnville and my aunt had three boys and they became wonderful brothers to me. I just really could not have asked for better. And I grew up there, graduated from Warren County high school. I knew I wanted to be an attorney, um, just because of, you know, all the legal matters that happened, you know, in my childhood, but, um, My aunt, I think, was very uh, overly protective and wouldn't allow me to go to college at that time. I was young, you know, I was a young senior. I was 17 when I graduated. And I think she was just afraid to let me outside of her sight, you know, afraid something bad would happen to me. So I went to college later and graduated from MTSU and then went on to National School of Law because my uh, passion for the law has never stopped. I became a paralegal for 35 years, enjoyed that tremendously, but knew I wanted to be an attorney as well. Got that wish granted, and I've been practicing now for three years, and I really enjoy it. I do primarily family law. That was what I always felt drawn to anyway. And then I started, you know, particularly – after college, I, I majored in sociology um, with an emphasis in social movement and social change. I realized that, you know, I really did want to give back. <coughs> Excuse me, but I didn't really know how to how to go about that. And I I was contacted by the local Democratic Party. Um, back in march that said you know your name keeps coming up in conversations with somebody who would do a good job in the senate for us and i was like well then you got the wrong information because i don't know anything about doing that (laughs) they're like no 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 (laughs) your name keeps coming up and i was like okay as in we'll we'll trick her into doing this and you know see what happens um but i did i did research everything and i spoke to several people regarding Issues that were of concern to people at large as well as myself and decided that, you know, I think I'm going to give this a go to see if I can make a difference on a wider scale. And so one thing led to another and here I am. And I can honestly say that I have enjoyed this process. Although, you know, it's been hard with COVID to get out and campaign as much as you'd like, but I've, I've met some wonderful people that I truly believe I'll be friends with for the rest of my life, regardless of what happens with this election. And I feel like I, um, you know, have kind of found my calling, you know, between practicing law and becoming a legislator. Uh, it just seems like a good fit for me. I enjoy helping others. And I feel like I could do that on a wider scale.
0: What do you see the role as of a, of a state Senator?
3: Well, I see the role as a person who listens to their district and the concerns of their district, and then goes forward to try to, to make laws that will benefit the district and the state so that our lives can be better in Tennessee, you know, with jobs, with health care, with education. Um, because I, I really believe that if you have, um, health care and you have fully funded public schools, that will attract employers to our state and will make the um, general populace have a much better life experience.
0: Let's talk about some of those issues specifically. Let's start with education. In your opinion, is the state involved at the right level in education too much, too little?
3: Overall... I would say the state is involved too little. They don't fund public education enough. Tennessee is currently number 46 in the nation for per-student funding. And people say, well, what does that really mean? It means that they don't give enough to our public schools for teachers to be able to get the supplies they need in their classrooms, you know, just things like that. Um, a lot of teachers are spending money out of their own pockets to make sure their students have all the supplies that they need. And, you know, we also see these lists every year at Walmart or Target that say, okay, if you're in so-and-so's class, you need to buy these things. Teachers are spending their own money on top of that to make sure their children have um, everything they need, you know, instructional materials, uh just, you know, everyday things, you know, tape, glue, whatever. And I think that that's a shame that we don't fund public education enough. And I think that the state, at least currently, is leaning more towards the voucher system so that our tax dollars go in vouchers that students can use at private schools. And in Tennessee, the majority of the private schools are religious-based. I have nothing against private schools at all. But I don't believe that it's something that should be funded with state tax dollars. Now, if they want to give a a uh, scholarship to a child who can't afford to pay regular tuition, then I think that's on them to you know make sure that child has the ability to come to their school. So I'm against vouchers for private schools. I think that we can put that money into our public schools, make our public schools better. Pay our teachers better for sure. Uh, I couldn't do what they do and they're, they're just champs. You know, they've gone through this whole COVID crisis and they're, they're working themselves to the bone and they're stressed out, but they're still going because they do love their kids. So I would have to say that I think that our state is not doing enough to make sure that our public schools have what they need.
0: What role, Sheila Younglove, does the state play and would you try to play in economic development issues in your district?
3: I think that the state can play a a huge role in that. I believe that, like I said, if they fund the schools properly, if we adopt Medicaid expansion into our state, which will be 90% funded by the federal government, government, I'm sorry, can't talk this morning, and the other 10% for Tennessee at least, the hospital association will cover. I think that we get those two things in, we're gonna attract employers. And I think that the state can come into that and say, okay, uh, you know, they gave like tax benefits and to uh, Amazon to come here. I don't think that we have to give that much of a uh, break to big corporations, particularly a giant like Amazon. Um, but I think that we do have to give some tax breaks to attract them to our state. And our state, you know, we, we get people here all the time that say they were just driving through Tennessee and thought, this is gorgeous. I think that we need to really focus more on our natural beauty and how we can um, make parks more accessible to visitors. And in that way, attract more businesses to um, develop that will, you know, help monetize uh, some of the natural beauty as far as access to it, things of that nature. Um, we could, you know, there's a, a group right now that um, are doing rails to trails in Tennessee, taking the old railroad um, systems that were no longer used and making those actual trails throughout Tennessee. And that's a non-profit, but it's a system that I think that if you do more stuff like that in Tennessee, you will have more businesses naturally follow from that it will be something that flows naturally from those types of developments so i think that the state could help quite a bit in that
0: you mentioned briefly medicaid expansion and there are some that believe that the 10 care system is broken or at least broken in the sense that it doesn't fit in with uh, the federal health care program how do you see that
3: okay I think that there are some things about 10 care that do need to be fixed, but let me say this: if you bring uh, Medicaid expansion to Tennessee, uh, 10 care requirements are that you have to be at least one hundred and thirty eight percent below the poverty level before you even qualify. We've got a lot of people in Tennessee that come under that umbrella, unfortunately, um, but you have the other people who don't quite meet that threshold. And that's where Medicaid expansion would pick up, so that people who don't qualify for ten care but can't afford private pay will have health care coverage through Medicaid expansion, and thus they won't go to the uh, emergency room for their health care and you know we've got hospitals closing left, right, and center in the rural areas because they're not receiving any sort of reimbursement, but to take that back to ten care. You can take some of the people who are on 10 care and slide them over to coverage under Medicaid expansion, and you can save the state money on that, uh, or they can redirect their funds to help those who really need 10 care more efficiently. And as far as fixing 10 care, I, I don't think there's ever any one easy fix. But I do believe that adopting Medicaid expansion would help in that regard because it wouldn't be such a burden on the state, you know, particularly when you slide people over from care to Medicaid expansion.
0: Finally, Sheila, how do you evaluate decisions? When you, uh, as a legislature, are going to be forced to make a decision on any type of issue, how do you evaluate it? What do you look at?
3: I research a lot, you know, as an attorney, I have to research things all the time. And so I do a lot of research. I interview people who are in the know on a particular topic. And I like to get, you know, several people so that I can get a complete picture, you know, not just people who support one particular piece of legislation, but maybe those who are opposed to it. I like to to find out all the views, do my research, and then, you know, come to a decision about if I think a particular piece of legislation is something we need or something that, you know, we can do. Uh, and then I think that you also have to talk to your constituents. You can't forget where you came from. You have to talk to them, get their, you know, insights, and let that help you craft legislation or propose amendments to legislation that will you know, help solve some of the issues that people are concerned about. I don't think you can just do it in a vacuum. You have to, you know, include your constituents in it.
0: Sheila Younglove is one of the candidates running in the Senate, the 16th District, representing Warren and Van Buren counties, as well as other communities uh, in and around that southern part of the Upper Cumberland. Sheila, we certainly appreciate you spending some time with us today, and good luck.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: The Republican Janice Bowling did not have time to participate in Meet the Candidates.